Holy Spirit, come. We ask you, Lord, as we bring our troubled souls to you today to give us a calmness. Take away all fear and hurt and give us, Lord, the fullness of your presence. Give us patience and an open heart to hear your word. We ask, Lord, in these moments that you would drive out all distractions that would come whispering in our ear, but rather, Lord, that we may attentive to what you would say to us today. And so I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me to your people, to bless them and to glorify your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. A number of years ago, my wife and I were sitting for some of our grandchildren. And all of a sudden, our grandson comes tearing into the house. It seemed like the only speed he had was full speed. And he goes into the bathroom, and he's there for a moment. And then uh, he, we hear the toilet flush. And out he comes again, tearing uh, toward the kitchen. He's going to get something to eat. Well, we had to yell at him, Whoa, son, stop a minute. <clears throat> we asked did you wash your hands? He looked at me and he said, we have a rule in our house that you don't have to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, we told him, that may be the rule of the house when your folks are here, but grandma and grandpa are here now. You go back and wash your hands. <clears throat> We wash our hands, don't we, after we go to the bathroom and before we eat. I know we had a ritual in our house that we always have to inspect hands before we would sit down to eat because you never knew what you might see on those hands. So you'd have to wash your hands before you eat. That leads us into the gospel reading this morning. The Pharisees, Mark tells us, from Jerusalem, the holy city, the cream of the crop, they come and they watch Jesus. They're always watching Jesus, trying to trap him in something. So they're watching his disciples and they notice that they didn't wash before they ate. Well, they didn't mean like we mean before of watch, washing your hands before you eat. Because we do it for hygienic purposes, right? Well, they had a hand washing that was ritualistic. And if you didn't do that washing, that made you unclean. That is, unacceptable to God. Well, and Jesus tore into them in essence called them a bunch of hypocrites because they took these rules that they had made and they had turned them into a part of what we must do to be acceptable to God. <clears throat> well Jesus had to to straighten them out and uh, that's where I want to focus on uh, verses 20 through 23 this morning. 
living by the rules. Rules regarding our thinking. Jesus gives a whole list of things that can come out of our hearts that make us unclean in God's sight. In regards to our thinking, he talks about evil thoughts, arrogance, and folly. Folly is just thinking with your heart and not your head. How many times have you said to someone, don't bother me with the facts. I feel this is right in my heart. This is my truth. So therefore, you have to go with what I'm saying. Jesus would call that folly. What about arrogance? Arrogance means that you view the world as owing you something. That you're not getting from others what you think you deserve. And evil thoughts. You know, Jesus had evil thoughts. Think about the temptation. Jesus, uh, Satan tried to put evil thoughts in Jesus' head. But the thing with, that Jesus did was he let those evil thoughts keep going. He turned back the devil by saying, it is written. He depended on the word of God to guide him. Well, what happens if we're constantly tempted with evil thoughts, with arrogance, with folly? Well, John writes that what we need to do is confess what's in our heart. We just said these words before, didn't we? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now notice, trying to deny we have sin, is that's folly. But, if we confess our sins. You know what confession is? Is it's taking ownership. We don't come to God and say, Oh Lord, you don't know how angry my wife made me this week. Oh Lord, you don't know how tempted I was when this woman at work wore this short skirt. And so on and so on. See, God doesn't want that. God wants to said, say that, you know, I fell to that temptation. I chose to be angry because of what my wife said instead of talking to her about what she meant. And you see, that's what it means to confess, is to take that ownership. And isn't it amazing what God will do? He will forgive our sins. Forgive us. Why should He forgive us when we get really honest with Him? Well, Jesus died on the cross for us. That was the payment for our sins. And that's why when we look to Jesus, we know that our sins are forgiven. 
But he'll do more than that. Notice he says, and he will purify us from all uncleanness or unrighteousness. I'm sorry. The word uncleanness comes here. Purify. Take away the uncleanness. God promises that when he forgives it, he'll never hold that sin against you again. You're free. You don't have to do those things this next week. Oh, will you do some of them? We're sinners. And that's why we come back every week and we get on our knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because, Lord, I screwed it up again this week. But knowing your forgiveness and your power to clean, power to give me the Holy Spirit, I can live a new life this week. And so on we go. Well, <clears throat> what do we do when we get these evil thoughts the arrogance, the folly in our heads. Well, Paul tells us we need to readjust our thinking. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, when you're tempted, when you feel trapped in sin, we know that God forgives us and that he makes us clean. But part of that cleansing process is that he also puts our, his word into our hearts. When Jesus said it is written, he followed up with the scripture, man does not live by bread alone. Here Paul says, here's a scripture for you when you're struggling with sin. Get something else in your thoughts rather than the temptation. And God's word is powerful. God's word can drive away from us the sin that would claim us. See, sin doesn't have to own us. God's word is the one word that will protect us. Well... Uh-oh, here comes another one. Rules regarding your sexuality. Hmm. That isn't a problem today, is it? Lewdness. That is a pre... Uh, it's a preoccupation with sexual stuff. Lewdness. That ever affected your heart? What about adultery? That has to do with breaking our wedding vows. Sexual immorality. See, you can think of it this way God draws a boundary and He puts His rules concerning our relationship as husband and wife, and we don't step outside of that as Christians. Sexual immorality is the stuff outside of that circle. I had a man, a member of my congregation actually, many, many years ago. He came to me and he asked, he said, is it a sin really for a man and a woman to live together without marriage? 
You see, he had a daughter who was doing that. He said, I, I've looked in the Bible, but I can't find a verse that says, Thou shalt not live together with my girlfriend or my boyfriend before I get married. And I said, well, there's just one word that covers that. It's called pornea in the Greek. It means sexual immorality. Paul doesn't list all sorts of varieties of sexual immorality. He, he knew that the Corinthians understood what he was talking about because there was so much of it going on in the congregation. And he said, notice, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. It has to do with a lack of restraint. The next slide. A lack of restraint. Guys, have you ever lost your head over a girl? Or girls, have you ever lost your head over some guy? <coughs> Excuse me. What happens is we start thinking with our hearts instead of our heads. And that's all a part of the process of courtship. But the problem is, we have so much today going on that says, if it feels right for me, it must be right for me. That these rules that God keeps throwing at us, and I had a girl tell me this one time, says those are, those are out of date. You know, our generation doesn't do that anymore. The whole thing with God's word being eternal gets lost in the whole mess. Because we have to stop and think about what God says. So one way to do that is we rethink the value of our bodies. Notice Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You're not your own. Now, I'm not trying to preach just to young people. I know most of you here are not quite 39. But I found people in your age group who have, are just as guilty of these sins as what we often associate with the sins of youth. We've all are tempted to think with our hearts instead of our heads. But God would draw us back to reality by saying, you know, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You know what that price was, don't you? It was Jesus and his death on the cross. As a believer, you don't belong to yourself. No part of you belongs to you. Every part of you belongs to God. And therefore, we use thoughts, emotions, our bodies to honor God. Well, 
How do we deal with this? Again, we have to rethink our value of our bodies. Again, in Christian marriage, that's the place where God intended it to be. And that's hard when we're thinking with our hearts. But it is so blessed because it is in the Christian family that the basis of our civil society, our relationship to one another, that's where it springs from. And that doesn't mean if you're not married and never married and never planned to, or that if you've been divorced, that you can't get it right. Remember, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us. That sins when we sin against our body, which belongs to the Lord. God will forgive and give a new start. You know, Jesus hung out with people like that. He hung out with prostitutes and all these types. And he said, you can have a new start. You can be made pure and holy in God's eyes. Well, there's other rules regarding other people's property. <laughs> well, theft, we know what that means. Envy. That's an attitude where others have more than what they deserve. But you deserve better. It's a form of arrogance, really. That when you start envying what other people have, that's, that'll eat, eat up your soul. Envy is also related to covetousness. You know, I was taught when I was a kid, covetousness was just looking at your neighbor and desiring what they have. And then I read Luther's explanation of coveting in his small catechism. And what he says in essence is that we use legal means to take away what belongs to our neighbor. Now think about that for a moment. Using legal means to take what belongs to our neighbor. What you do is if you're envious, you get a couple politicians together and they pass a law that says, I'm sorry, what you have really belongs over here. So we're going to take it away from you. It's that kind of thing. And we see a lot of covetousness today because people are unhappy. People are resentful. And I'm sorry it infects the church as well. So what do we do? We say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sins, if we can bring before God our sin, He will forgive it and again, He will purify us. And it starts with confessing our idolatry. Put to death everything, <clears throat> put to death whatever belongs 
to your earthly nature, which he includes as greed, which is idolatry. Greed is really has to do with always having to have more. That you never get enough. That you're impatient with the world and never satisfied. Greed, and it doesn't have to be just money. Some people are just greedy because they feel like they deserve something better and they keep reaching out there trying to find it and never get a hold of it. So how do we counter that? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians, learn the secret of being content. Philippians 4.12 I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I don't know about you, but I've met people that were dirt poor, that were happier than people who lived in a fine house. They were content. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard to advance yourself, that's not greed. Greed is when your stomach gets turned upside down and you just have to have more and have to have more. See, it can be greedy dealing with the love of your wife or your husband. That is, you look at her and say, you owe me more. You don't love me enough. I can't be content with what you give me. Because you owe me more. But to learn the secret of contentment. Well, how do you learn to be content? The secret is, is just practicing it. Could you today just look around and say, Thank you, Lord, for what I have. Is there more that I would like? Yes. But I'm not going to let it keep me up nights. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to keep throwing it at you, Lord, demanding more. Well, the last one. Rules regarding your tongue. Mm-hmm. Well, how about slander? That happens too often in the church. You hear some gossip and it's untrue and you just don't like the person that it's about and so you start repeating it and you amplify it and all of a sudden you're slandering that person's name and reputation. That is wrong. That is wrong. Also, deceit. That is telling a lie and passing it off as the truth. Being deceitful. Who wants to be around a deceitful person? And yet sometimes we can't help ourselves, can we? We just think the truth would be too ugly and people might not think good of us if we told the truth. And so we become deceitful. Oh, malice, don't you love this one? Mm. It's, it's a form of hatred. 
Malice is seeking ways to bring harm to those you don't like or whom you consider your enemy. Malice, too, can infect our hearts, can it? Haven't you got so angry at some times that you wish a little lightning would fall from heaven? Or got so angry that you wish that when they drove home they had a flat tire? Well, I guess those may not be the kind of malice that you may carry in your heart, but it's something to think about. And then murder. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if you are angry at someone, you are guilty of murder. Well, that's pretty extreme. Now, what Jesus is teaching is not that anger is wrong. Jesus got angry. Man, when he drove the money uh, changers out of the temple, he was super ticked. He was angry. It's not that whether we get angry or not, it's what we do with that anger. Because it can turn into hate. Hate can turn into malice or slander. Malice and slander can lead to physically harming someone else. Anger is the root. And what we have to learn to do is not deny our anger, but learn how to deal with it. To bring it to God and say, I'm so angry I can't stand it. And say, God, forgive me. And he will make our hearts clean. Well, how on earth does he do that? Well, we confess it. We confess to extinguish our hellfire. Notice James says, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It is corrupt. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me. Don't you believe it? Words can last a whole lot longer than the pain of a broken bone. Put a bunch of malice on your kids and see how they grow up. If you constantly pour that kind of stuff on them, if your tongue is loose, you're going to see the fire that can burn. But, what do we do with that? How do we, we confess it and God what does what? He purifies us. And how does he do that? James goes on in chapter 3. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. How does God deal with our anger that we want to hang on to? He transforms us into peacemakers. 
And that takes practice and learning, reading verses like this one, and also getting help. In dealing with all these sins, that's why God puts us together as the body of Christ. I've said this many times before, but I think every one of us needs a mentor or two. That is, we need to have someone that we can be honest with about our sin, who will go on loving us and forgiving us and helping us to deal with those sins. If you try to deal with any of these sins by yourself, you're in trouble. Satan's got you. But if you're able to talk it through with one or two other believers, it will help you. Now, I thought about how I'm going to want to end this message. I don't think there's anybody today who would disagree that our country is headed in the wrong direction. And it troubles me dearly. And I really think, this is my opinion, that we are beginning to experience God's judgment upon our sin. And where judgment begins is with the church. So what I've said to you today, I know I've talked longer than I should, but what I've said to you today is not, it's not out there. Judgment begins with the church, with our honest confession of our sins, so that we can be a light and we can be salt. In Paul's day, the church began to transform the Roman Empire. Not through political power, but by the power of the gospel. And it is confessing Christians then that we are able to make this witness and to make a change in our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your powerful word. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit use, in our, use it in our hearts to convict us of our sin, to cleanse our hearts, and to make us salt and light in the world. Provide us with believers who, to whom we can share our confession and with whom they will love us and forgive us and help us learn to become peacemakers in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.